I don't know if you are familiar with um, Anthony Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown, his, his TV show where he goes and explores different areas, different cities, different cultures. Um, well, there's one episode where he goes to Charleston, South Carolina, and he goes to actually hang out with a professional chef, a guy by the name of Sean Brock, famous chef in, in Charleston. And <laughs> Sean's first place that he takes, Anthony Bourdain, is to the only place where you can get quality late-night food. He takes him to the Waffle House. (laughs) And I want to read you their exchange about the Waffle House. Sean Brock. We have one choice for late-night eating, and it's the Waffle House. They create this environment where no matter how blitzed you are, or how normal you are, you are welcomed and treated equally with an experience. It's not just like, you know, eating a plate of food. Bourdain says, you're talking about it all, this magical spiritual place. Brock says, it's beyond magical and spiritual. And then Bourdain does what he does best. He says, it is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. For everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. It's warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside to a place of safety and nourishment. He says it's always faithful. It's always, always there for you. Two guys sitting in a waffle house give a description, I think, of what the calling is for every single person who follows Jesus Christ. You see, the calling for every Christian is to be a peacemaker, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered, wherever you meet them, into a place of of safety and nourishment. You see, a person who follows Jesus Christ is supposed to be a beacon of hope and salvation. We're supposed to be like the Waffle House, if I can put it like that. And so Jesus comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I mean at the end of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and we get towards this great little concept where he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So before we jump into this idea of peacemaking, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us once again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is indeed a grand calling for us, your people, to be beacons of hope and salvation, to welcome and embrace anyone and everyone in your name. And we primarily do this through this concept of peacemaking. 
So would you give us understanding this morning? Would you help us to see the great hope of shalom? And would you come and use us as instruments of peace for the sake of your name and the glory and honor of who you are? For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The biblical concept for peace, or for the Hebrew word shalom, is, is far richer than I would begin to imagine our use of the word peace is. Um, you see, for most of us, when we think about peace, we just simply think about the cessation of, of hostility. Um, but the biblical concept for peace, for shalom, is, it's far richer it's far deeper and it's far more profound. And um, Cornelius Plantingham, it was a quote that was up on the screen as a, as a reflection. He said this about biblical peace. He said, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors, and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. I, I love that quote where he, he just summarizes shalom at the very end by saying, it is the way things ought to be. And so this morning, as we kind of think about the idea of peace and peacemaking, how do we actually get to that place where things ought to be? How can we cultivate this shalom, this biblical concept of shalom? And so what I'm going to do is I, I, I want to look at just two things. I want to look at the, the inner peace that is necessary. And then once you have the inner peace, it actually cultivates us into instruments of peace. So very simple outline Inner peace and then instruments of peace. First, inner peace. I would imagine that peace is not a word that we typically would use to describe ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is this, most of us in here are asking questions that hint at the idea that we don't actually have real inner peace. For instance, many of us are asking questions like, Am I going to make it in Santa Barbara? You know, if I'm a college student, am I going to make it at Westmont or at UCSB or at City College? Or if I'm a, a recent graduate on my way to college, you're wondering, am I going to be a somebody or a nobody? Am I going to find a, a community of, of safety and nourishment where, where people actually approve and accept me? You see... All of us in here, regardless of, of belief, 
are asking questions that actually hint that we don't have peace. And the Bible goes so far as to say that unless you have peace with God, you'll never find peace. Because the questions that we're actually entertaining, all the noise and the, and the result of actually having no peace, are really questions about God. All these questions that we have where we're searching for peace are really underneath all of that are questions about God. And this is both true for the believer and the unbeliever or the skeptic. Paul, the apostle, um, he does this often where he'll, he'll talk about the fact that we, when we show up in this world, there's enmity or hostility between us and God. This is just kind of how we naturally show up. There's, there's a rage between us and our creator. This is for every single person. There's hostility. There's no peace between us and God. It's how we naturally show up. But then Paul will go on to say that, but if, if you actually are in Christ and you have faith, if you're trusting in him, that, that enmity, that, that peace has actually been established. But in our progress of growing more into the likeness of Christ, there's still remnants of hostility at work. Paul calls this the old self that still reeks its ugly head. And every single one of us, believer or skeptic, still have symptoms of hostility at work. There's a lack of inner peace. What do I mean? Well, you can think of it like this. There's intellectual hostility. There's volitional hostility or there's emotional hostility. And this is kind of universal. So think about it. Intellectual hostility that kind of generates this lack of inner peace. Have you ever sat down and just kind of read the Bible and were immediately confronted with this thought that you disagreed with God over maybe how he acted or maybe what he commands his people to do or to believe? Have you ever just sat and read the Bible and thought, I don't know about that, God. I, this last spring at, at UCSB, I was, I was teaching through the life of David. And I knew there was this one passage that I was going to have to deal with that was just, it's always jarring. And it's the passage where uh, a, a young Israelite um, is, is guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall to the ground. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is the the place where God said, I'm going I'm to rest my presence here in the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's this Israelite who reaches out to prevent the Ark falling to the ground, and it says very explicitly that the Lord struck him dead. And I was like, you read that, and it's just jarring. Like, how do you deal with this? But the scriptures are unequivocally clear that God is holy, holy, holy. And he's not a God to be trifled with. You see, there's intellectual 
hostility at work when you have serious disagreements or you're confronted with Scripture. And we all wrestle with this. We all wrestle with, am I okay with the biblical sexual ethic that the Bible puts out? Or gender issues? Or Jesus' own view of hell? Or how the church is to be governed? You see, there's, there's symptoms of hostility at work in our heart. What about volitional hostility? Have you ever made a decision or, or a, a choice, a sinful choice that led to just severe consequences? Or, and, and right after that kind of lapse of, of moral judgment, you, you said something like this, Lord, I, I promise I will never do that again. Am I the only one that's ever prayed that prayer? <laughs> you know, we, we pray that prayer often when we battle with sickness or disappointment or failure or when we are just dealing with the consequences of our own sin. Lord, I promise I'll never do that. And here's what happens so often is that I break that promise with impunity. Sometimes I, I forget that I, <laughs> what I actually promised. And, and here's the deal. We would never tolerate that kind of impunity with our family or friends if they broke as many promises as we break to God, right? You see, there's this volitional hostility. There's this residual hostility that's still there. What about emotional hostility? I just want you to gauge your temperature this morning for God and, his, and in your affections for Him. And, and, and this happens all the time. I mean, our hearts can be warm towards people. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a couple did something really remarkable for my wife and I. And, and it just really moved us and it warmed our hearts towards this particular couple, uh, just as we thought about them and, and their gift, and it was, just, it was just remarkable, you know? And I thought about that, and I realized that, you know what, on a, on, a, on a bad day for me, when I either feel, you know, it's bad day parenting, <laughs> or I just feel horrible as a husband, or I preach a terrible sermon, perhaps right now, <laughs> you know, I... I should be able to run to the cross of Christ and have my heart warm towards his affection, his favor, his grace, his kindness, and just rest in him. But so often when I'm just having one of those bad days and I think about the gospel, I'm kind of like, meh. And to illustrate that, I, I, I came across a, a story about a young girl who was really sad that she was single and not dating. And so she met with her pastor, and her pastor was really trying to encourage her. And, and he sat her down, and he said, listen, you're in Christ. I mean, you have forgiveness of sin. 
You have all of these blessings. You have the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who's guiding you and just, he's for you. You have his face and his approval. And I mean, he's just like throwing these string of, of assurances and promises. And when he was done, and I just loved her response because she was so honest. She said immediately, she goes, so what? if you're not popular. And I thought, man, she gets it. So what if I'm not climbing the social ladder? So what if I still am living paycheck to paycheck? So what if I am still single? You see, there's just this residual of hostility at work. And it happens intellectually, volitionally, emotionally. And, and the Bible comes and it says that unless you see and admit your own hostility towards God, you'll never have shalom. You'll never have peace. Inner peace. And this is what's so beautiful about Christianity is that God, our creator, has gotten rid of the enmity that exists between us and him. And the way that he got rid of the enmity, the rage, the hostility, was that he gave us his son, Jesus the Prince of Peace took our hostility and rage on himself, and in exchange, we get peace. And I want you to think of it like this. You realize that Jesus died for you. When you and me believe that we know more than he does, especially in relation to how we think this world ought to run, whether that's ethically or socially. Jesus died for our intellectual arrogance. Jesus even dies, even died for us when we make promises that we never intend to keep. He died even when our temperature was raging hot mad towards him. Because you see, Jesus took our rage, our hostility on himself, and in exchange, we have peace, shalom, that inner flourishing and fulfillment and delight. So how do you know if if you have this inner peace? Or, or how can you see it at work in your life? Maybe is a better way to say it. There's many ways, but I, I want you to think about two. Two ways that you know that you have inner peace. One way is that in your relationship with God, you find Him more beautiful than you do useful. That in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this one God who exists in three person, He 
is more beautiful in your eyes. His grace is much sweeter. Like he in himself is what satisfies your thirst, your longings, everything about you. But there's also a second way. And the second way is that you become less afraid. You become less afraid of your, of your failures. You see, for most of us, the way in which we measure our inner peace is by our performance, right? So, if I'm succeeding in life, if I'm crushing it, I've got inner peace. <laughs> but as soon as I fail or experience disappointment, my life falls apart. Why? Because the metric that I use for inner peace is always based on my performance. And the person who has inner peace, shalom, is going to base or is going to use the measuring stick of Jesus' performance on what he's done for you so that you don't have to be afraid to fail anymore. When you fail, instead of running further from Jesus, you actually run towards him. His grace is much sweeter. You're not afraid anymore. I don't know if you are familiar with Dax Shepard's um, new podcast. He's an uh, actor. It's called Armchair Expert. And um, he interviews all kinds of people. Um, celebrities, politicians, just people who are just doing wonderful things in the world. Um, but I came across an interview that he did with Will Ferrell, uh, the comedian and, and actor. Remarkable. Um, I already loved Will Ferrell, but I really loved him after this interview. But at one point, Will and Dax were just kind of talking about how he got into acting. And he said, you know, it, it, was, it was strange. I, I always kind of felt like I could do it, but I didn't really kind of have the motivation to. But eventually I decided, you know what, I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to pursue acting and comedy. But he was afraid to tell his dad because he didn't know how his dad was going to react about him pursuing this comedy career. And this is what his dad told him when, he, when, he, when Will said, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this. And his dad goes, Will... I want you to, he goes, I'm all about you moving out to L.A. to pursue this as long as you're okay failing at it. And Will said that was the biggest game changer for me in my life because I realized what my dad was communicating to me was this. He says, you don't have to succeed in order to get my approval. You see, the Christian who has inner peace, is most free. They are most free, and they're not afraid to fail. And when you have this inner peace, what it does then is it begins, it begins to cultivate in you and in me instruments of peace. So this inner peace actually begins to produce instruments of peace. Did you notice the, the promise that is attached to blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons 
of God. And what I want you to understand is that this beatitude, what it is, what it is promising is that there's a family likeness that will begin to take place for those who have inner peace. In other words, the peacemaking father has peacemaking sons and daughters. That when you've experienced the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the generosity and the hospitality, the welcome, the embrace, the safety, the nourishment, when you've experienced the Waffle House (laughs) from Jesus Christ, you begin to emulate that to anyone and everyone. You see, that is the grand calling for every single Christian in this world. The grand calling for every single one of us in God's economy is to use all of our influence all of our strengths, all of our gifts to bring about that ultimate flourishing to anyone and everyone. In other words, to be instruments of peace means that we are constantly thinking about the shalom and the salvation of everyone around us. We're thinking and praying about where can we go to bring about harmony and reconciliation and unity. Where can we be sons and daughters of peace? You see, when you have peace with God, you immediately begin to display peace for God. Listen to how Chuck DeGroat put it. He says, the peace that Jesus envisions here is shalom, the kind of transformative flourishing that comes neither, and I want you to listen to this, neither through avoidance nor through power. It is the inbreaking of God's reign in reconciled relationships when enemies become friends, Jews sit with Gentiles, and Muslims fellowship with Christians. In other words, Chuck DeGroote says that, and I'm stealing this from a a friend of mine, he says you can either be a peace faker, a peace breaker, or a peacemaker. He says you can be a peace faker through avoiding conflict. This is what Chuck DeGroote is saying. He says the inbreaking of God's shalom doesn't come through avoidance. A peace faker is someone who avoids the conflict because they don't want to upset the apple cart, right? For instance, this is, this is the, the friend that perhaps you have in your, in your circle, your sphere, who struggles with addiction. And perhaps that addiction is an eating disorder or a substance issue, and a peace faker is someone who refuses to confront them about their addiction because they don't want to upset the person. You see, that is cheap peace, which is no peace at all. That's a peace faker, someone who avoids the conflict because they just want to be liked. 
Or you can be a peace breaker. Peace breaker is someone who stirs up the conflict, who enjoys the drama, who enjoys running people over to display their own power and influence. You see, they wield power in a way that corrupts and runs people over in order to make a point. And they do it with no mercy, with no forgiveness, with no gentleness, with no love. And Chuck DeGroat says, you don't avoid nor do you use power, but the peacemaker is the one who steps in and engages for the sole purpose of reconciliation. They emulate the characteristics that they have seen from their Father in heaven. They're slow to anger. They're abounding in steadfast love. They're patient. They see that love covers a multitude of sins. You see, they begin to emulate the characteristics that they have seen from their Father. They are full of grace and truth. I came across a a wonderful story about... um, the, the famous African-American blues musician, Daryl Davis. Um, he's known for his music, but most recently he's kind of become known for something else, which I think is beautiful. At one point in his life, he was attacked uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. And he thought, I don't know why I'm being attacked when these people don't even know me, but they're only attacking me because of the color of my skin. So, Daryl decided that he was going to do something really crazy, in my opinion, but he reached out to the Ku Klux Klan. And he wanted to get to know them, and he wanted them to get to know him. And over a couple of times this happened, he got to know some of the Klan members, and slowly these Klan members began to leave the Klan and get rid of their racist ideologies. He's actually now been responsible for over 200 people leaving the KKK in recent years. And he said this, he said, you know what, you sit down with your worst enemy and in five minutes you'll realize you have something in common. And in 10 minutes you'll realize that you have more in common and the things that you actually differ on matter less and a friendship can actually begin. I thought, wow. That is a peacemaker. You see, every single one of us, individual, group, and especially the church, are called by the Prince of Peace to be instruments of peace. No matter where we are and no matter who we interact with, Jesus gives no caveat but simply calls us into the work of bringing about shalom everywhere. It means then that you go into your neighborhoods or the campus or your workplace or in your own family where there is known hostility and you bring shalom. 
You bring the beacon of hope and salvation. That's your calling. So how do you know that you're being instruments of peace? I'm going to close with this. Two ways. And it's paradoxical. And it may frustrate you. But such is the kingdom of God. Two ways you'll know you're being instruments of peace. One, people will be attracted to you by your love and your grace. And you'll be persecuted for righteousness sake. People will be attracted and repelled at the same time. Now, you can be persecuted for being obnoxious and a jerk and fanatical and rude and unkind, and that's not the way of the kingdom of God. But if you're not being persecuted at all for righteousness' sake, it just simply suggests that you lack courage. So the question that you need to ask yourself this this morning is, is when people interact with me, are they coming to know the Prince of Peace and is there pushback? Like I said, it's paradoxical and it's frustrating, but such is the kingdom of God. I came across a story um, about the early reign covenant church in um, Chengdu, China. Back in December, a hundred members of this church were arrested by local authorities. And uh, the pastor, Pastor Wang Li, and his wife and an elder, Timothy Lee, were all arrested as well. And And Pastor Lee wrote this from prison. He said, If I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and my Savior, I'm very joyfully willing to help them in this way. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there's a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Christ. Separate me. from my wife and my children ruin my reputation destroy my life and my family however no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith no one can change my life No one can raise me from the dead except Jesus Christ. He's interviewed by an Atlantic reporter. And in the midst of their interview, the police come in and take him away. And he comes back and the interviewer is like, what was that about? 
And Pastor Lee says, the local police come every week to get the list of those who attend my church. We give them the information. We have nothing to hide, and our congregants are okay with it. In fact, it's a precondition to join our church. They must give us their name, their address, and their family details and be okay with the local authorities contacting them and even arresting them. And they are. He says, we don't want to be the underground church anymore. It's not healthy. You see, that is a church and a group of people who have the inner peace of Christ. And who are being used as instruments of peace at the cost of their very lives and reputation. We have so much to learn from our friends outside of the United States. May it be so for us to have the inner peace, to become instruments of peace for the glory and honor of the resurrected Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.